Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, and I'm here in Oxford, staring into my screen, as I pretty much always am these days. But right now, it is showing me the beautiful, wonderful face of my co-host, Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. I am actually like pretty good this morning because I'm looking out my window at some bright sunshine, and I can see some crocuses poking up in the neighbor's garden, and... I feel like spring is coming now. Like I can't, it's undeniably coming. <laughs> Thank God. And also my mum got her jab last week, which is just this like major, major thing to know that that is like happened. And I don't know, I feel I'm basically, I'm cresting a wave of optimism very tentatively and gently. And I know it won't stay around, but like while it's here, I'm, I'm on it. How about you? Yeah, same actually. I found out yesterday that my parents are getting their first vaccine jabs next week, which is really surprising. Amazing. Um, surprising because they're, they're in Massachusetts and there was this whole thing with the rollout. It was like getting tickets to Glastonbury, but my sister somehow like, got through and booked them appointments. It was this whole thing. And it was just such a relief. And I didn't realize how much stress I was holding related to that. So it's same. amazing. Yeah, it's amazing I to so, feel that. so identify with that. It's because you, you're worried about them constantly, but in this really amorphous way. And then suddenly this thing has happened and you think, oh, maybe I can just push that anxiety, not all the way out, but just to the side a little bit and make room for other anxieties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I feel good about that. I mean, yeah, I feel a little bit more positive and I'm sure it has a lot to do with the weather right now even though it has been raining all week but just feeling a little bit more warmth smelling that spring smell it's happened Definitely. a couple of times and it's really exciting we're recording this on a on a saturday morning which is really nice it's so nice <laughs> isn't it i know yeah. it's so um, nice to be doing it in daylight yeah we usually do it in the evenings after work and i have to juice myself up a bit but i feel better this morning so that's nice i'm also excited because our theme today is one very close to my heart which is adaptation building on our show in 2017 with dana spiota that looked at books about film we want to explore what happens when books turn into films we'll be talking about why literature is often a source for cinema what the best adaptations get right, and some of our favorite movies inspired by books. Our guest is author Niven Govindan. Niven's sixth novel, Diary of a Film, unfolds over the course of three days in an unnamed Italian city, where an auteur director has come to premiere his latest film at a festival. It's a love letter to the cinema and an intense meditation on the creative process, artistic control, queer love, and flanners. Octavia, do you want to introduce Niven? I would love to. Niven Govindan was born in Sussex in 1973. He's the author of five previous novels, most recently This Brutal House, which was longlisted for the Jalak Prize and shortlisted for the Polari and Gordon Burns Prizes, and which you may remember I have been rapturous about on the show. You have um, been. He, I have been. I love that book. <laughs> and I love this book. Niven lives and works in London. Also, excitingly, our long heralded Patreon page, we're going to launch it next month. We're going to be offering some amazing extra monthly content for patrons, including the chance for patrons to suggest topics for us to discuss. So please continue to check our socials and get thinking about if there's anything you'd love to hear us wang on about. <laughs> yeah, and we've already had some really great um, suggestions, so keep them coming. Yeah, keep them coming. We want to know. 
But for now, stay tuned for our interview with Niven, a more general discussion of literary adaptations into cinema. And finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So grab your popcorn. It will almost be like sitting in a crowded movie theater again. Almost. That was, that was a good one, babe. Yeah. I felt like I went for the earnest. I always I go for the earnest. I <laughs> the day when you make it like an arch irony, I'll be surprised. It's hard for me. Niven Govindan, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a thrill. So we've asked you to start with a reading from Diary of a Film. Do you mind setting it up for us? Absolutely. Um, With pleasure. So this novel is set in northern Italy with an auteur who flies to an unnamed city there to premiere his new film. And the novel is an unfolding of the next few days as this film is presented And it's a mixture of the impact the film has and also on a chance meeting that he has that impacts his future work. What I'll read from you now is actually right at the beginning from from chapter one, because this novel for me feels like it's very much immersive and kind of a journey. And I kind of want to get you in that frame of mind. I flew to the Italian city of B to attend the film festival in late March. Our entry into the competition, a liberal adaptation of William Maxwell's novels, The Folded Leaf, had been officially confirmed, and I was expected to participate in three days of interviews and panels to promote the release, with a jury screening on the second evening. My co-producer Gabriella had arrived at the start of the week to prepare, also the cast, who were busy hawking other projects, about which I was both curious and jealous. It's hard to think of actors, good actors, as anything other than your own once you've worked with them. I knew they'd be expecting me to watch their films while I was there, wanting their betrayals to be blessed, and I anticipated that it would hurt as much as watching them with other lovers, a feeling especially pronounced when the new film was still warm on my lips. Eight months had passed since the production had wrapped and I missed their company, particularly the two leads, Lorian and Tom, who had a youthful ease that blended seamlessly into our production family. Nothing of the film could be changed at this point, and I'd made my peace with it, absorbing the heightened pressure of meeting strict deadlines in order to screen in this competition. There were other festivals through the spring and summer, but this was the one that mattered to me, having previously brought me luck and with it a sense of calm. But for all my confidence, I arrived in the city feeling apprehensive. The trip had the air of both a working holiday and a funeral. There was excitement for the next stage in the film's journey, one in which I envisaged only good things, but also a finality, for with it my participation would cease. It was for Gabby, the actors and their publicists, to take the baton and run for the glory they dreamed of. I could return to my hometown of S, regroup and retreat into my ideas. My first impulse on arriving at the airport was to have the car take me directly to the hotel. So keen was I to see Lorian and Tom again, to hear their voices and to feel their breath. I wanted to suffer their tender, respectful mockery, typical of young Americans who'd been brought up well, but I was also aware that this would be the last time that I would play their loving God, and I wished to delay that. They'd not yet seen the completed film, so therefore a realm existed where they could not be disappointed in me. It wasn't the first time that I explicitly sought the love of my actors. There's an almost supernatural aura of openness, risk-taking and safety present in the shooting of some films that does not exist in others. As always, 
we'd been pressured by a tight shooting schedule and insufficient money, but the folded leaf was nourished by magic. It informed the breaking light of dawn shooting and held its power over us until the end of the day. Drunk on its potency, it interrupted my sleep for much of the principal photography. So keen was I not to lose this holy atmosphere, feeling the mist would clear on waking. I'm not a superstitious man. There's no room for the Ouija in filmmaking. But we were all touched by the same feeling and simply wished this gift to stay. It was something I hoped was honoured in the final cut, and by which Lorian's and Tom's faith in me would be justified, as mine already was with them. I asked the driver to take me to the harbour where the fishermen were delivering their catch, with a strict instruction to collect me at the same spot in half an hour. My late grandparents lived in a fishing village, so there was something resolutely familiar in watching the boats come in. Fishermen from the one trawler docked carried a procession of buckets to a line of trestle tables, holding large polystyrene boxes loaded with ice. I was taken back to childhood and the surprise of seeing what was there. Watching now as the buckets were swiftly upturned, a shower of fish clattering in their new ice boxes. Then, as now, there was something depressing about being unable to compete with nature. How much of its wonder could outsmart the camera? My film was set in the Italian countryside, and though the gardens were lit by angels, the fruit trees fulsome and glowing, they did not contain the life that tumbled before me. I thought of parental disappointment when a child follows a lesser path, only the state of the film was entirely down to my hands. I was no bystander, but responsible for all of it. The woman on the other side of the table was shouting at me for blocking the view of others who were waiting to buy. I was awake then to the laughter of the grounded fishermen as they sluiced the blood and guts from the cobbles with buckets of fresh seawater and the attack cry of the gulls that hovered above. Get a move on, came a man's voice. What's he doing? asked another. Make your decision somewhere else, mate. I seemed to move further back into the crowd, but I knew I would not leave without buying a fish, eventually taking what was left in the box, a grouper and a sickly-looking grey mullet, and going back to find the car. The bag was of the thinnest white plastic, gossamer to the touch, which allowed the rough texture of the grouper's scales to graze my palm as I walked. I could have held the bag by its flimsy handle, but instead I held out the package horizontally before me, as if making an offering to anyone who would stop and acknowledge my presence. My film was offered on similar terms. By walking into the hotel and the suite reserved for my first meeting with Gabby in the cast, and then subsequently with journalists and potential distributors, I too was making an offering as pure and sincere as the catch turning rigid in my hands, until I suddenly felt embarrassed, dumping the package in the gutter before we drove away. I looked at my gesture rotting in the sun until it was out of sight, hoping the gulls would sense it was there and quickly destroy the evidence, talons tearing through plastic to reach flesh and bone, pecking and chewing till nothing remained. Wonderful. This is a book infused by film, as as you can tell from that opening passage. And I, I wonder if you could just talk a bit about your relationship with film and, and why you wanted to write about a filmmaker. Well, I suppose I I have a long kind of relationship with film. I, I, I really do think that cinema has had the sort of, has had a big an influence on my writing as literature has. And um, I studied film at Goldsmiths in the early 90s. And I always knew that I was going to write, but I really wanted to, to have a kind of creative practice. And I was, you know, I was drawn to filmmaking. And doing that just taught me a lot of things. And But one of the great things was I just watched a lot of films and watching films and breaking down the narratives of films and really throwing yourself into 
the rigors of storytelling left a big impression on me. So when I started writing this book, I sort of had that in the back of my mind. When my first novel came out, because I'd been to Goldsmiths and done film, a lot of people were saying, oh, it's a cinematic novel and you're like a cinematic novelist. And it kind of really annoyed me for a long time. And then as I started writing this, this book has a direct link to my fourth, this is my sixth book, this book has a direct link to my fourth novel, All the Days and Nights, which was set in late 70s America on the East Coast, and it's narrated by a dying um, female American portrait artist, sort of based on, not on Alice Neal, but sort of an Alice Neal kind of vibe. And she's, she's very famous. And she spent her entire working life painting portraits of two people, her studio assistant and the man who becomes her husband. And as she's dying, both her and her muse are in their own ways trying to work out whether this was a, a life you know, their commitments were, if it had all been kind of worth it. And when I finished that book, I really couldn't let that idea go. And there was something that felt really unfinished to me in terms of my own kind of lines of inquiry and how I felt about it. And I suddenly thought, this is the point where I, I now want to stop thinking about books as being individual universes, but actually I want to think about books in cycles. But I, I hadn't really defined what that cycle was. And then I sort of went off and wrote this brutal house and that, you know, that had nothing to do with with um all the days and nights and as I started writing Diary of the Film the penny dropped and I thought ah this is what I'm trying to do which is uh, the arc is an arc of books about makers and about creating work and about giving you know your life to creative work and what it takes out of you and from a sort of practitioner's point of view because you know seven years had passed I was interested to see how my point of view had changed you know in those seven years they you know they come from different prisms but they're informed by the same thinking. Yeah, I mean, inside the book itself, you are exploring the parallel between, you know, you have the auteur who's the narrator and then the writer that he encounters. And so there's that contrast set up between the two of them, the writer whose work is very solitary and the director whose work is incredibly collaborative. And then also, obviously, we're hyper aware that you're a writer and you've got five novels behind you and this is your sixth. And I, as I was reading it, couldn't help but kind of it wasn't that I was reading you, Niven, into the auteur, but I was hyper aware of the parallel processes. And I was wondering yeah. how you related to that. Like, it's you're so meticulous in the book about the intensity of a film shoot and um, you really get inside the kind of emotional and physical feeling of being part of a really tightly connected gang, which is obviously so, so different from the novelist's experience of creativity. And I wonder if you could talk about that tension a little bit. Well, I, re I really like that, that you kind of identify that kind of juxtaposition of tension, because yes, the kind of the meeting that he has with Cosima, the woman he meets um, in, a, in a cafe and their subsequent kind of rapport just has a real impact on the kind of direction of the book. And I, I was, I really like that. I mean, the thing is, for me, it's very, you know, this book is very much kind of an analogy about writing. And he, the difference between th this being a book about a director and a book about an auteur is, you know, it could have been a completely different thing because a director takes on projects and just gets on with it. An auteur is someone who has complete control. So he also has a writer's mind, but he sort of recognises that he needs the the physical presence of people around him to physically create a world and to have collaborators so he's in massive admiration for Cosima because he he finds out that she writes books then he goes and speaks to his producer and says you must find me these books and he reads one 
straight away like overnight and he's sort of in awe that she can do what he does perhaps you know to his mind better just on her own with no fanfare because she doesn't need what he needs and he sort of sees that kind of he identifies that lack I think I also felt like in the tension between those two you're you're doing something which I really appreciated about the difference in egos and there's like a thread that runs through this about the power of like the male ego and Cosima represents a different kind of ego. And I feel like I really enjoyed that interplay because obviously the writer has to have an ego as well because all art making includes an element of legacy, right? Yes. But the kind of powerful ego of a director who has to call an entire company of people beneath him, is it seems different. But I wonder if that was like a conscious something that you consciously wanted to explore or if that's something that just kind of emerged in the writing it's a mixture of both things because I'm I come from that kind of Philip Roth school so I have a rough idea of what I what I'm thinking about but I have no real plan apart from that and it's really about one sentence and following the other and then things start to emerge but as that relationship sort of developed I realized that she wasn't going to be a sycophant and actually because film filmmaking and particularly directing and more so if you're an auteur it's all about power so I like that they they can speak to each other on on a level because they both appreciate each other as artists they're the same age they've had the same sort of experiences as sort of middle-aged people who come of age in a tumultuous Europe through like the 70s and 80s and stuff you know you you don't know his entire background but you get like he's probably like an Eastern European director and obviously you know Italy's social history is, has been tumultuous as well. So they, they, there's a lot that they connect with and they like each other as people. And I think that makes her unafraid to challenge him. And I like that she constantly challenges him. And he, he's sort of, sort of disarmed by it, but he likes it as well because he's surrounded by people who, you know, it's a very paternal novel. You know, for me, he's, he's, he's a sympathetic character. He's not, but you know, he, he inspires loyalty. He has a family atmosphere. But, you know, he can be guilty of kind of wrong thinking too. So I just like that she sees through that and will constantly challenge that. I wanted to ask you, you said before you wanted to see if your perspective had changed over seven years. And what did you notice about what had changed about your perspective relating to creativity? I'm not sure what I have learned is, is kind of the, is, is the honest answer. The difference is, I think, between the two books is that I've probably written more of myself in it, not in an autobiographical way, but I'm kind of conscious that I kind of want to... I mean, all my books feel that they've kind of got my imprint on them, for sure. But because this is a story about creating and it's actually about writing, and actually all the days and nights had this had the same sort of vibe, but it was about painting, so I couldn't... I, I, I didn't really leave myself there in the same way. So um, I don't know. I just wrote it with that. I wrote it in the way that I wrote all my other books, which is that sense that I've kind of got nothing to lose and I just have to really just, it's kind of an, it's always an all or nothing. It's always like a life and death situation for me. So I just kind of pour everything into it. Yeah, I love the way you speak about the writing process, the kind of intensity of it, because I felt like this was a very intense book. Like it's intensely internal, but there's something about it that kind of grips you. Um, yeah. And and that's partially, I think, also the way 
you've written it without paragraph breaks, which I have to admit, at first I thought was a mistake in my ebook because I was reading <laughs> the kind of the file that the publisher sent over, and I was like, "Oh, this is so annoying." And then, and then actually, I started to you like it. It was deliberately like, annoying. <laughs> Love it. Well, I really went on a journey because then I was like, well, I actually quite like the way this is washing over me. And I don't know if he meant to do this, but it's creating this very different um, reading experience. And then eventually mm. I realized that it was actually what you meant to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if you could talk about that. I wanted it to feel kind of really, you know, I wrote it in a sort of, I suppose, in a dream state. So I kind of wanted A, to carry that through. And I'm always thinking about how the work is presented as a text and I wanted to kind of blur the lines between the interiority of, the, of his kind of narrative with what is going on in the outside world as he's walking around and his interactions with people. And just on a very basic level, I hate paragraph breaks. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I think a lot about how speech is presented and I just didn't want anything to break it. I wanted it to really kind of run. You know, it could have been problematic, but I knew that... I, I was writing in a way that it would run and it would read. If I'd written it in a different way, I couldn't have presented it in that way, for sure. And also I like that, you know, each chapter is a, is a specific episode. So, you know, on a, on a sort of filmic level, they should feel like separate reels. You know, it's all one, it's a novel. But, you know, they feel like reels in a way. But yeah, the, the, the not having paragraph breaks and not having, you know, speech marks and stuff, because all that stuff jars and it takes you out um, and also as a reader, what it does is your eye will always jump. So you're on one page, but your eye's still looking at the other page and you can see where the paragraph breaks is, where the speech is, where you might give yourself a little break. And for me with this, it, I was thinking very much about how it would be read and I really wanted it to feel that you were immersed. I didn't necessarily want you to come up for air until you kind of reached the end of a reel, let's say. It feels so appropriate for a novel about an auteur because it's like, it's so controlled, right? I mean, like... had a really funny thing when I delivered it um, to um, Charmaine at Dialogue and my, my agent had read it and we were ready, you know. And I, the first thing I said to her when I sent it was, there are no paragraph breaks in this book and we are not having any discussions about it. <laughs> Full she was like, that's fine, that's fine, I get it. <laughs> you went full Bunuel on her. You were yeah, just like, exactly. this is what's happening. <laughs> I think it's great though. And I think that it's, I don't know, it really sets the tone for the the energy of the piece because one of the things that I appreciated so much about it as a lover of film and a lover of literature and a lover of generally the experience of um perceiving art in whatever form it comes to me is the way that I ingest it and it becomes a part of my own thinking process and my own creative process as well and I think yeah. the way you've written this book Amazing. makes that process makes that kind of the way that that happens so clear because we're in the director's perspective and we're in the kind of creative generosity of all of his emotions and the way he experiences his relationships as much as the way he experiences the other pieces of art that he comes across and I found reading it super inspiring for that reason because it kind of validated a process that I value in my own uh state does that make sense like I feel like okay, I feel like yeah. you've written a book that is a book for everybody but it's also a book that really gives anyone who makes anything like a nice warm validating hug <laughs> Oh, good. I hope so. I mean, the other side of that is, of course, I think is that my my own philosophy is that 
you know, in terms of creating work and being part of that kind of environment, I think generosity is incredibly important. I think, you know, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do it any other way. But I will counter that by saying that with writing, it is the most selfish act. So you have you have this kind of two-sided thing of wanting to be generous, but also acknowledging that you have to be incredibly selfish because it's that's the only way you can get a book done. It's not a collaborative effort. Yeah, totally. Well, and I wanted to ask you because it feels like having your director have a husband and a child was an incredibly deliberate choice to kind of shine a light on the tension that anyone who's making anything has in their life between their home life and their creative life. And I wonder if you could just talk a bit more about that decision and why you had those characters in there as well. Um, I wanted to have a sort of family life off camera. It kind of felt really important. A, also because I knew that I was going to write a sort of, you know, this was going to be kind of a a filmic novel with a very kind of queer kind of gaze. So it was really important that he was kind of a queer um, he's not a queer filmmaker. He's a, he's a filmmaker who's queer. I guess is probably the best way to describe it. And you know, I was thinking of people like Visconti, and you know, there were many great auteurs I was thinking about. But I, what I realised as I started writing this book, as the penny sort of dropped because I spent about a year beforehand watching every single Fassbinder film again, back to back, and kind of reading his biography and remembering that he was like a complete kind of terror and really pushed people and was also completely miserable. And I started, when I was writing this, it was really important to have this kind of sense of queer joy and the idea that you can be, still be kind of, not tortured in your creative life, but it's an uns- it's an unsettling life because everything is based on uncertainty until you've kind of finished creating something. So to counter that, it was important that he felt centered somewhere else and the other instance of queer joy and queer love in this book is the relationship between the two lead actors in the film that he's just made um tom and laurian and it's an incredibly tender portrait of the beginning of love why why did you want their relationship with each other and the blossoming of their relationship to be such an essential part of this novel I think it's just one of those things that you find through the writing and it just became that way. Um, And I really liked, um, A, just because the relationships were really strong and I understood the dynamic quite quickly, but also I really liked that what was happening was an extension of what they'd first started acting in this film, which is, you know, the film itself is an adaptation of William Maxwell's novel, The Folded Leaf, which is a sort of depression era novel set in Illinois about a sort of, um, two boys growing up and you know it's an unrequited kind of thing and it's all very torturous um, and I like there's something of that as infused out of their working lives into their into their own lives yeah I just I, I just like the tenderness of it I mean I was just in a very kind of reflective frame of mind when I was writing this book and actually one of the things that I that wasn't conscious but it was only when I finished writing it was that and someone said this to me recently, was I'm really surprised that it's, you know, it's such a refreshingly uncynical book. And, you know, a lot of my writing is, is really kind of sharp. And, you know, I kind of explore kind of different areas. And but I really wanted that something that felt really kind of pure. So, you know, that extract I just read where I said, you know, he's, he's carrying that group and he's holding it up as an offering. It's it comes with that kind of intention, I guess. I also love the fact that the love that you show the 
that the director has in his family life is like one kind of kind of very stabilizing, very wholesome love. And then the love emerging between the two actors is, as Carrie said, sort of tender and tentative and early. And then the other mm. kind of love you show us is the the slightly more mad love, the kind of obsession that the director feels when he senses the beginning of a new project. And I love that, the intensity yeah. that he feels when he meets Cosima and her story inspires him and where that takes him without revealing too much. But it, I love the tension that you drew there and the fact that, as you said, like the creative process can sometimes be torturous and there are lots of examples in literature and film of the crazed creative, just like there's mm. like the alcoholic detective and it's much more interesting to have a detective who's got a happy home life. Like I love the fact that we have a director with a happy yeah. home life. But I wondered if you could talk a bit about that, um, that kind of, the the hint of his obsessive nature that you give us? I guess what I'm trying to pin down is, and this is probably one of, this is sort of the area that I think is part of myself is, there is that sort of grey space when you're between projects and you're trying to understand how ideas come to you. So, you know, you write a book and you spend five years writing a book and you're focused on one particular thing. So with this brutal house, you know, it's very much in the voguing world. And But in those five years, I'm still, you know, having life experiences and things are happening and I'm reading, you know, tons of stuff. But you filter all those things that are interesting. You think, oh, that's interesting. But you just kind of tuck it away. And then when you finish the book, all those things you've sort of tucked away come flooding back. And it's it's the kind of brew, it's the mixture of all those things. So he's sort of he's sort of in limbo and sort of flailing about. And it's that sort of period of flailing about I find quite interesting because it does make you a bit crazy because you're like, am I going to get an idea that coheres? Will it come again? And it's a mixture of experiences and influences, but also it's about chance encounters in life. You see someone in a cafe, you walk past a painting or you hear a story that your family member tells you. So it's a mixture of all those things. So I suppose that is what I'm trying to kind of throw myself into and understand through trying to write it out. Yeah, and that makes me think about another element of him trying to find his next idea, which is if it's if if all our ideas are okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to think of a better way to say that, but th so much of this book is about whose story artists are allowed to tell and what they're allowed to do with stories and mm. what they should do with stories and the, and the kind of ethics of, of art making, really. And that comes out in his relationship with Cosima, definitely. And as so much of this novel does, it, it brought me back to thinking about you as a novelist. And um, I, I just wonder if you think, <laughs> I wonder what your relationship is to these questions. I mean, you don't strike me as a particularly straightforwardly autobiographical novelist, at least in no, the kind definitely of not. the way that your books are reflected in things. So I wonder if yeah. when you think about ideas for your novels, how do you tease out that question? How do you decide what stories you can and maybe shouldn't tell? I suppose, well, I mean, for me, they all, it's about intent, firstly, but actually all the novels come from um, deeply personal places. So the actual genesis for starting that novel comes from a very kind of true place that feels authentic and real and it feels like it's my story to tell all the novels so um 
so I've never had I, I I'm not the sort of writer who's who's like oh I want to write about you know aeronautical engineering or you know like someone like Richard Power who is just phenomenal every book is you know people say my book's completely different every Richard Power's novel is completely different and he really throws himself into you know whether it's um biochemical engineering or ecology or whatever um and I'm not that kind of writer it's it's you know I'm, I'm much more um it comes from a kind of intuition with what, what what's currently on my mind like my own thinking kind of like my own sort of emotional state and what I think about work or I don't know it's kind of and then it mixes with all the other things you know like paintings I've seen and you know all that kind of stuff but I'm not one of those people who's always like looking around for stories and trying to snatch conversations I'm always observing stuff but I'm not one of the you know I'm not I'm not sort of a magpie in that kind of way yeah and actually the the other thing that comes up with that question is adaptation which is what we we're talking about more generally in the show and this is the history of cinema the history of cinema is the story of adaptation yes from the early days of hollywood to the from the bible you know mole flanders charles dickens stories hollywood was was about taking books and making the films in the way they thought films should be made so you've got an, an auteur who adaptation he writes his own films but adaptation is his currency so when he meets someone who's got a great story and then has written a novel his immediate thought is i mean obviously he's profoundly moved by the experience anyway but his immediate thought will be oh i I need to make this into a film and that is his currency and you get the sense or you know my intent is that because of how i've portrayed him he could be trusted with that idea but whether he can be is down to um, his relationship with Cosmo, and as it unfolds, you you kind of see what happens. It's the that notion of trust is so important in the process of adaptation, isn't it? And like we, Carrie and I, before when we've been planning the show, we're thinking in a more broad sense about successful and unsuccessful literary adaptations to film. Yes. And that trust, like you have to, as a director, if you're adapting, you have to trust you need the the readers have to trust you to do justice to their experience of the book the writer has to trust you to do justice to their experience of the book and then the film itself you know is is another thing entirely and i, I within the universe of your novel the adaptation of the folded leaf is uh, not an entirely faithful one right it's like a, a kind no of, absolutely yeah. and it's it's sort of like a sort of cinema nerd in joke that idea of kind of european directors taking a a sort of concept and then completely running with it maybe you know so it's not set in illinois he plonks it in italy it's beautiful and they all think it's an incredible film but you know how close is it to, to the to the original novel probably not that much Right. And maybe that is the key to making a good adaptation. Maybe the yeah, key it's, is that it's, it's about the point of view and it's saying, you know, I've I've had books that have been um sort of pitched out for films and stuff like my second novel. We spent a decade almost almost getting it made with a um German writer director because I only want to work with writer directors. I think if you're a writer director, you have a sensibility that I will trust you that to then go and do what you want to do with it. Because everything I've said or wanted to say I've done in the book, the book exists. So, and film is a collaborative effort. So I would, I'm really happy to hand my work over if I've got, if I find someone who, even if they change, it doesn't matter if they're, if they've got a pure artistic intent and they just want to take signifiers from it, that's fine. I'm interested in that whole process. 
Is there a particular director who you would love to adapt this book into a film? Um, well, I, I keep thinking about Ozon from France, Francois Ozon. I mean, no, like our modes of R, I really, really love, but he's please, made Pain and Glory. He's made, <laughs> he, he's made my book already I guess I know um, I know but I want him to do this one as well it would be so I w- glorious I would, I would I would love it so Ozon Almodovar Alice um Rohrwacker from Italy she's really incredible you know I'm always I, I think about directors in terms of kind of palettes and tones and stuff so there's there's kind of a whole list of people um but in my you know in my fantasy world I would go in a time machine and give it to like Visconti or Pasolini. Yeah. Pasolini, I mean, please, Pasolini. Would be. I mean, you know, I read a lot of Pasolini in the sort of year and a half leading up to me writing this book um, and watching the films again, but actually really being moved by his writing a lot. And he was very much on my mind when I wrote this. Just listening to you talk about that, I love how seriously you and this book take art and um it kind of gets back to what you were saying about it being not a very cynical book it also feels like you know so much of the art that's made now or the way that we talk about art now is like we kind of have to be ironic we can't be earnest we can't be like straightforward about great art and trying to make great art and (laughs) one of the things I found so refreshing was this book just takes its project so seriously I think, you know, this is like my sixth novel and, you know, I'm like in my mid 40s. So I really do say what I want to say. And I'm not interested in sort of being apologetic or ironic. And I always want to be, you know, everything I write is like deadly, deadly serious. And it's like, for me, creating art is a serious business. You know, there's lo- there's enough people who, who do who will write this kind of book, but do it in an ironic way. That's not what I'm interested in. You know, this goes back to my original um, thing that you know creating work is a matter of life and death you know without sort of overstating it but the need to do it and do it well can be you know all consuming and more important than anything and I kind of really kind of want to get that across as a final question uh-huh. I wanted to ask you it was so wonderful to read about people walking around an Italian city and I know right <laughs> sitting at cafes <laughs> and 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 you know the 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 idea of the flinner comes up a lot and you know the 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 actual act of walking around the city is so mm. important to this novel but also it was just just such a wonderful escape and Octavia and I were even talking about this before we started the call you know how badly it just made us want to be sitting in an Italian cafe and I am sure you started writing this before the lockdown but I wonder when when you're writing about somewhere that's very different from where you are um, and especially something like an Italian city do you feel that kind of escapism in in the writing itself like how how do you relate to to evoking that kind of place I don't I don't feel escape because I think when you're when you're in it it's such a sort of the whole thing is such a concentrated act I'm not really thinking about it in that way I'm always interested in creating a very strong sense of place in all my novels that's like really important for me place is always the sort of unnamed character in any book but it's really driven at heart by my love of being in European cities and walking around and it is it is sort of like my love letter to kind of the European project and this notion of freedom you've got a director who's from an Eastern European country who works with 
people from all over the world and you know his team are all european and all crossing borders and flying in and out everywhere um so i really love that but you know walking around european cities with my polaroid is literally like one of my favorite things to do ever and I remember reading Lauren Elkin's book, Flanners, which is mm. incredible. And as soon as I read that book, I was like, okay, kindred spirit with Lauren because book is incredible. And I wanted to infuse the kind of spirit of that book with my own love of walking within, in European cities with the kind of, um, with Cosima's autonomy in her personal life and in her creative life. So, you know, one of the joys for the book for me is just the walks that she has with the director, you know, day and night, and they're wandering around. You know, I really, really love those. Yeah, I loved them too. <laughs> <laughs> Niven, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. And I thank you. hope one day we'll all be in a in an Italian city together. Listen, we'll be meeting, we'll be meeting in like Lucca or Siena or somewhere like that. Can you imagine? dream, the dream. Gelato all round. (laughs) I can't wait for that. Thank you so much. This episode is sponsored by Picador. We are big fans of short stories at Literary Friction, and what can be so exciting about stories as opposed to novels is the way that a writer who has mastered the form can use just a few short pages to zoom in on a particular character, moment, or situation and provide a razor-sharp dissection of wider questions that affect us all. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite things about the form. And Danielle Evans is one such writer who has mastered the short story and her new collection, The Office of Historical Corrections, is just about to be published by Picador. These stories are full of X-ray insights into the universal confusions of love, lust and grief. But what is striking about this collection is its blisteringly smart examination of how history, particularly in relation to race and culture, haunts us personally and also collectively. In one of these stories, a white college student tries to reinvent herself after a photo of her in a Confederate flag bikini goes viral. In another, a black scholar is drawn into a mystery involving an agency committed to correcting historical memory when they try to correct an account of a racially motivated murder. This is a collection of urgent, timely relevance, and Danielle Evans has been described as the finest short story writer working today by none other than Roxane Gay. Tiari Jones has said, this book reminds me why I love short fiction, and The New Yorker has called this collection sublime and extraordinary. The Office of Historical Corrections is out on the 4th of March and is not to be missed. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is literary adaptation. Now, I think the first question is, what makes a good adaptation from a book into cinema? And I think the question you kind of have to tackle first in some ways, even though I think we both agree it's sort of a boring question is how important is fidelity to the source text? Because of course, there's all, there's always hand-wringing, especially when a very famous or beloved novel gets adapted to the screen, um, because people feel very strong feelings about the work that they love. And I think sometimes are very offended when a movie does not resemble what they think a book is. So what do you think, Octavia? What makes a good adaptation? My personal feelings are probably not the general feelings. Like I think in a way, the most successful adaptation is one that flies free from the original text and creates a work of art that sits alongside it rather than something that tries to be a tracing of it. Because 
by default, you're crossing over into a different medium. It's a totally different form of expression with its own set of parameters and boundaries and needs and difficulties. So if you try to replicate it exactly, you're going to fail. And the other thing is, obviously, one of the great magical truths of literature is every reader experiences the book through their own kind of um, perspective and has their own imagination and relationship to the book that lives inside them. And therefore, everyone's interpretation of a book is as individual as them themselves. And of course, we have like, there's this other kind of wonderful thing where we have this shared hallucination of these particular characters, but the the minutiae of how we relate to them is going to be different. And like, some people will find a particular character in a novel very desirable, while other people won't. And you know, like, I think the relationship of desire is one that comes into this question in a huge way. And I don't just mean sexual desire at all. I mean desire in its broadest sense, because cinema is a language of desire. The visual language is one that's all about yearning and like, it's a very immediate response. Whereas the way that you respond to writing and text and the act of imagining that has to go into that relationship is slightly different. And I think doesn't always involve images as we've discussed before, right? The way that you read is not image-based and the way I read totally is. Whereas obviously when we experience a film, we're going to be experiencing it in a in the same way, largely, right? Because we're literally looking at the same thing. And so I think any adaptation that tries to be like, like for like is going to fail terribly. Whereas if it allows itself to breathe a new and different life into the same source material, then it's going to have a chance of being more successful. I would say though, the caveat to that is that because now feels like the era of binge watching and of like phenomenal TV miniseries, that changes things a little bit because there's the chance to render a novel more faithfully because there's just more hours, right? Like you can never put everything from a novel in a one hour and 90 minute one hour and 90 minutes that's two and a bit hours isn't it yeah. <laughs> excuse me two and a half hours two and a half hours what's that how long is a movie anyway like two hours two I don't hours. Know. Yeah. yeah so like two hours how long does it take you to read a novel probably at least 15 hours well like four hours you can read a novel in four hours oh but I'm thinking of the long book <laughs> I'm thinking of basically my audiobooks I'm thinking of of when I see how long an audiobook is on my phone you know what yeah. I mean and it's like but you can read hours. more quickly than somebody reading aloud I mean usually. I, I, mm, I don't know about that it was a good point sorry I didn't mean to take you down you're right I you're enjoyed right. it you shot me down like a clay pigeon and yeah. I, I felt it <laughs> a novel feels like more of an investment in a number of ways to me a lot of the time you know like it's it's less passive, right? It, and and cinema can be challenging, but the decision to read a novel is a very different kind of commitment. And I think that is part of what you're talking about. So I think it's a, it is a good point. And you're right that if you tried to replicate the plot of even the simplest novels, like for like in a film, it's it's impossible. You can't do it in two hours. Um, and that's the you know from the start, adaptation has to be an adaptation it, it cannot be mimesis it's oh she got her ma words in there <laughs> <laughs> Whip that's, probably out. Not e- that's probably not even the right definition of mimesis anyway i love um, it when you talk academic to me baby yeah. <laughs> i know you do <laughs> yeah it's interesting what you say about your view maybe being different from others views because i really feel that way too and it's clearly what niven thinks as well when we were talking to him and I wonder if it if it's maybe a little bit the difference between being like a fan and someone who's thinking about art being a fan makes you much more protective of work in some ways um and yeah I I just wonder if you took a survey of 
the world, how many people would be offended by adaptations that stray really far from a work of art? I'm not sure. But, you know, taking something of the the feel or the kernel of the story and and bounding off from there is is the way that I like to think of a successful adaptation as functioning. And Stanley Kubrick actually had a lot of really interesting things to say about this. Almost all of his work was adaptation, but almost all of those adaptations were very, very different um, from the original source texts. And he talked a lot about fidelity, but fidelity as fidelity to an idea or an obsession rather than a plot. And I really like that principle. I'd recommend his essay, Words and Movies, which he he published in Sight and Sound. And he really believed that the style of books is very different from the style of cinema. And so you need to use different styles to convey similar ideas and feelings. And I like that. Kubrick's a great example because that's also the power of the auteur. Like I'd much rather on the whole watch an auteur's interpretation of a film than just a Hollywood adaptation of from a novel to screen. Because what I want is I want Kubrick's read on Little Women. Imagine. <laughs> I think it would probably be quite like how I feel about that book. Um, but like, you know, that's what thrills me about the power of adaptation is when a director who has a very specific style and a specific outlook turns their gaze onto a story by a writer that I that I know and I can't wait to see how they're going to interpret it so part of the thrill is in the interpretation rather than just because I think because I read in such a visual way I don't need a movie of the book in order to take me to that place so what I want is I want the camera lens to be a specific perspective that's going to take me somewhere deeper or somewhere different with the source text does that make sense yeah that makes sense and even though I don't read it in a visual way I I feel the same way. I, I want to experience something different. I don't want to see the same thing over again. It is interesting to think about the authors in this whole situation as well, which is, again, something that comes up in Diary of a Film. For instance, Stephen King hates Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining, which is pretty acknowledged as a brilliant film, right? Yeah. But I think, you know, I, I can understand being an author who feels that they're trying to capture something very specific in their art and to see it taken by somebody and made into something else must feel very alienating. Um, right. And I mean, there are a lot of bad adaptations, which we'll get to, which must be very offensive to authors, but it, this shows that I think even good adaptations can, it can be hard to let go of that singular artistic vision that you have when, when you sit alone in a room writing a novel. I think also because so often, because films can reach a wider audience much faster and tend to be phenomenons in a different way from books because again it's the group experience of watching a movie and also just the fucking money in that industry right a film's version of a book often usurps the book itself and I think that must be very very difficult as an author to be like everyone's talking about my story but they're talking about this fucking Hollywood version of my story that has nothing to do with the deeply felt nuance of the book I wrote that must be really really difficult but I think also if you if you're a maker of anything it's always part of the thrill, but also part of the peril of doing that is that 
other people will interpret it in a completely different way from you. But obviously, if, it, if it's just individual readers, they're not going to usurp your vision with their perspective. And you can just be like, oh, that guy just really didn't get it. And <laughs> that woman really did. And I love her reading. Whereas when a director kind of takes up all the space and the actors embody the characters in a way that you can't come back from. And then when books are reissued with stills from the film of the book on the cover, and it just, the two things become totally impossible to separate. I think that must be very frustrating. Yes, I think so too. But it also sells a lot of copies of books, which is interesting. But I want to talk about which books we think make good adaptations, if if one can make any sort of pronouncement about that. Um, Do you think that bad books can make good films? Definitely. Oh my God, totally. I I like... I love a filmed version of a trash book that I can't be bothered to read, but that is like a great pacey story or something like that, you know? I mean, it's one of the reasons why I was actually really disappointed by the film version of The The Da Vinci Code. That film had no excuse to be bad. Like Dan Brown wrote a supposedly a novel, which basically just reads as like a series of notes for a movie, as far as I'm concerned. So why didn't they make a good film? But they didn't. It was a complete dumpster fire. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's a question about genre, isn't it? And I'm trying to tread carefully because I don't believe that because a book is a genre, it's a worse book. But I also have noticed in my own reading and watching habits, I'm I I am I really love a lot of films that are genre films. So like I love crime films. Um I I really like sci-fi films. And sci-fi films are some of my my favorite films of the last few years, but I really don't read sci-fi or fantasy. And I was trying to think about why that is. I mean, I think it gets back to what you were talking about before about the commitment of reading versus versus watching a movie, but I think it's also the way that you need to build worlds and tells stories in books and especially for something like sci-fi and fantasy I find that kind of tedious like I'm not so interested in reading pages and pages and pages about you know middle earth or a new sci-fi society that you kind of have to understand how everything works like that's so much more easily actually translated into the medium of film instantly and and so I love Game of Thrones, for instance. Well, I love some of Game of Thrones, let's just say. But I, try, I tried to read those books and I couldn't. I was so bored. And, and I find that about science fiction a lot as well. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think for you, knowing you as I do, the thing that really hooks you in reading is emotional beat, you know, like you're there for the emotional side of it. That's what gets you interested. And that's what maintains your attention. And what you've just described, like sitting through pages and pages and pages of world building is a much more intellectual relationship with reading, right? Like you're not getting hooked into the emotion yet, if ever in that way, you know, it's a totally different mode. And if what you're looking to reading to give you is something very different from that, then that's always going to feel unsatisfying, right? Whereas, as you say, all of that information can be translated in a five second scene, (laughs) then you can get straight to the emotional beat if that's what you're into. I mean, I also think like, you know, romance stories is a good one. Like every now and again, I'll watch a a rom-com and I'll enjoy it. Mm, Is that true? (laughs) I mean, if I can like put aside the messages of capitalism that just infuse that genre, I can enjoy it. But I really don't read that kind of literature. And I find in the written word, the kind of narrowness of those archetypes, which they often are very frustrating. Whereas on screen, again, I think it's the level of commitment that's asking of me. It's a few hours, you know, it's it's different. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I mean, you know, I love rom-coms, but I don't read romantic 
literature. There's also loads of cinema that is that is very different from what we're talking about. That is more like reading. That that I also love and that stays with me. And I go to those films to be challenged and to be taken somewhere different and uncomfortable, maybe, and to be changed, essentially. Mm. Um, but like, I certainly don't go to like the TV version of Sense and Sensibility for any of that. <laughs> The TV well, version of Sense and Sensibility is great. If you're talking about the, an- it, the Angley, Sense and Sensibility is excellent. It is excellent, but it's also not going to change me. And actually, <laughs> I think that uh, this is a really great example. I hate reading Jane Austen. Ugh, hate it. But I will happily, happily, happily watch a film adaptation of any of her books. That's the medium I want those stories in. And actually, the most recent Emma is such a great example of that. I absolutely, I loved it. I ate it up. It was fabulous. It's by a director called Autumn de Wilde. And it was kind of, it gave me everything I wanted, actually. It took this kind of tired old story and injected loads of contemporary humor and style and sensibility into this classic. And it was an auteur's vision and it was funny and sexy and beautifully shot. And it gave me, it gave me what I wanted. It was like eating a delicious, delicious cake, you know? Yeah, I actually haven't seen that yet, and I really want to. Um, oh, it's great. I think I would love it. I, I also love reading Jane Austen. I also think it's funny that you ended up at Jane Austen after I asked um, if bad books make great movies. Going to have the Austen fans. Busted. I've been so busted. Sending angry letters. Along those lines, do you think that there are any books that are just impossible to adapt? I do actually. And one of my favorite books is famously has had many failed attempts. So it's the book called The White Hotel by DM Thomas. And I recommend actually having a a Google. He wrote a brilliant piece on The Guardian many, many years ago about this exact process um, where a number of different directors have desperately tried and they've had funding and then it's fallen through. And there've been quite a lot of dramatic Uh, reasons why it's never happened but he's been in this like strange relationship with the optioning of his book and there'd been money and then money taken away and just like he he writes this about the tension of the emotional experience for him because he all he you know he would love it to be made into a film and then he's totally victim to the machinations of Hollywood and the star machine and money and all of this stuff but actually the reason it hasn't been made into a film is because it's a really complex book that involves poetry and letter writing and different forms of literature within it and it's it's a very difficult story to tell in two hours I think someone should make a mini series of it I think that would be fabulous Mm -hmm. and maybe have each bit of the novel that is written in a different style interpreted by a different director like that I would watch I think any book could be the kernel of an idea for a film but For some sure. books are really, really hard. You know, Faulkner's work is famously people have tried to adapt it and it, it just never quite works. And it's because those books are so internal in a way that's really hard to replicate on the screen um, yeah. and voice as well. I think one example of a really creative way around this problem is the movie Adaptation, written by Charlie Kaufman, who was asked to adapt Susan Orlean's book, The Orchid Thief, and struggled with it and struggled with it and ended up writing a movie about the struggle of adapting The Orchid Thief. You know, you might have mixed feelings about this movie. This was kind of the the pinnacle of like filmic, playful metafiction. I love it. I haven't watched it in a few years and maybe it wouldn't hold up um, now that I'm not so concerned with things like mimesis. But <laughs> but I think that's a great movie to talk about when you, when you talk about this struggle. Yeah, I've never seen it. I would love to. So should we talk about some of our favorite adaptations? 
I would love to. I'm feeling quite smug about this choice, actually, because it's kind of a double adaptation. Um, so it's a film called Lady Macbeth, which came out in 2016 by William Oldroyd and starring Florence Pugh. And it's based on a novella written in 1865 called Lady Macbeth of the, now I have no idea how to pronounce this word, Matensk District. It's spelled M-T-S-E-N-S-K, Matensk. Fun, fun for the uh, sibilance on a recording. Anyway, by Nikolai Leskov. And that novella obviously takes for its inspiration the Shakespeare character of Lady Macbeth. So there's a sort of double step. But this film is so stylish, so fun, so kind of camp. And it's the perfect illustration for me of the power of artistic collaboration between many minds. So writers and directors and actors and cinematographers, the costumes are exquisite. So you really see the way that a film uses the talents of many, many different people coming together. And then the fact that it's a double adaptation in a way, like it's just this huge collaboration across centuries as well which is really exciting and you feel that the many layers of different perspectives and artifacts that have come together to make it and how fresh turning a contemporary light on an old text can feel when it's done really well so yeah it's it's a very tight and very beautiful period piece but with this really modern sensibility and kind of violence at its heart it's great did you see it I haven't even heard of it well, this is the weird thing. It came out at cinemas, but it was a very small release, I think. And it did not get the attention that it deserved. I think you'd really love it. Sounds great. Yeah. And I love that. That's a whole branch of adaptation we haven't talked about, sort of using old stories to to make new ones with a text that we all know as inspiration. You know, Shakespeare famously has has been a great... Who? <laughs> It's such a bad joke. I know it was such a bad joke. I'm sorry, I've had too many cups of tea. But I laughed. I laughed. I laughed. (laughs) Just when you said the word famously, I couldn't help myself. What's yours? Well, it's funny because I was thinking about movies that I truly love that are also adaptations. And for the most part, I haven't actually read the original book. I, f- I feel no compulsion to do that when I really love a movie that's based on a book. In some ways, I, I sort of want to stay away from it for some reason. I'm, I'm not sure why. But that's definitely the case with Arrival, which <gasps> love that is, film. yes, it's and it's based upon a short story by Ted Chiang called The Story of Your Life. The film, I mean, you probably know it, but it's about a linguist who is tasked with trying to communicate with an alien species that's arrived on Earth. And it's just one of my favorite movies of the last few years. I love it mainly because that setup, that sci-fi setup really becomes a way of interrogating the deepest questions about humanity and communication. Um, But it's also just really thrilling and visually absolutely stunning. And Amy Adams as Louise, the kind of central character, is just so emotionally there in that movie and yeah. um, and I I loved it but I don't feel particularly compelled to read the story my my friend Jamie became obsessed with that movie and then like went out and read the story and read all the other stories and like got really into it and I feel like that's one way of consuming an adaptation that it just isn't as much what I feel I need to do well, it was so interesting because I, I did that but not quite so directly but after loving that film I bought um, Exhalation which is the the short story collection that it's from for John and he's been reading me the stories over this lockdown and they're fabulous you know they're really fabulous they're all ripe for having movies made of them though again I want like loads of different directors to come and each interpret each story from that collection like a Tad Chiang festival love it yeah I just clearly want to be uh, like optioning books for movies I <laughs> should do that <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
This is Literary Friction. I'm back here with Octavia Bright and also Niven Govindan to give some book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start with yours? I would love to. I'm actually really thrilled because I think Niven's going to, I think you're going to really approve of this, Niven, having just said that you were reading a lot of Italian literature over the last few years while you were writing your novel. My recommendation is The Days of Abandonment by Elena Ferrante. Translated yes. by Anne Goldstein. It is such a great book, isn't it? <laughs> um, it is fantastic. And on our last minisode, I said that all I'd really managed to read lately were Ferrante's novels. And I hadn't read the Neapolitan Quartet yet. So I read those and then I just kept going. I wanted to just devour her entire universe. And this is the one that has just not left me alone since. So the narrator Olga is a woman whose husband of 15 years has just abruptly left her. And it seemed like that was it was a happy marriage as far as she was concerned. And he's just gone and left her with the two kids and the dog. And they live in Turin, but she's actually a Neapolitan, like most of um, Ferrante's narrators. And the ending of this marriage is a jolt. But then she learns that he left her for the daughter of a colleague who he first met when she was a young teenager. And this sets her off into having a breakdown. And the novel is basically the exploration of this woman's complete collapsing within herself and then how she rebuilds herself again. And it's so bold. It's kind of, it's very challenging. Her spiral is very confronting, especially for anyone who has experienced that liminal place that you can get to in times of extreme stress, basically. But what I love about it is it sends Ferrante, whose writing is always quite brutal but tightly brutal it allows Ferrante to go into this complete depravity essentially with language as well as with experience and it's very explicit Olga kind of starts to explore violently explicit sexual language and things like that and like reading Ferrante writing the word cunt is for some reason incredibly exciting to me because (laughs) you know some writers use profanity in a way that feels lazy or cheap but with Ferrante everything is so tightly chosen and tightly held that these profanities are extraordinarily powerful and they seem totally in tune with the internal violence that Olga is experiencing and then the way that that spreads out into her external world I'm not going to talk about it because I really don't want to give it away but there are some very intense scenes that take you right to the edge of mortality basically I don't know it's it's very intense and it's incredibly restrained but also at the same time really really unrestrained and I just can't wait to read it again I kind of there's no writer I would rather be taken through the total dissolution of boundaries by than a writer like Ferrante and I just yeah read it read it but like read it in one go if you can I would say because then you get the full hit I I haven't read that Ferrante and, and so many people have recommended it to me and I, I just need to read it. I think I've been a little bit afraid to read it, you know, just because it seems so intense, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think you should be like it's it's a gut punch, but in an in an extraordinarily wonderful yeah. way. It also really makes me wonder what the original word that Anne Goldstein translated into cunt was in Italian and what yeah. that means. And if it's if it's um, the direct translation. Very email her that. and ask yes. her. <laughs> <laughs> Niven, could we have your recommendation? Yeah, sure. Um, I love that Franti novel. I think it is incredible. My memory of it is, is actually that it's really wild. Yeah. You know, you're right about that kind of dissolution. It is really wild. And she really, you know, her intent to wound is, you know, no one does that better. Yeah. You know, it comes from a very primal place, um, that sense of, animal hurt and wanting to fight back is amazing 
we all want to meet her, don't we? Definitely. Um, <laughs> pretty much. So I'm, I don't know if you talked about this on the show before, which is the Harlem Renaissance novelist Claude McKay. No. Um, who is properly amazing and interesting. He's only, he's only written a few novels, but um, he has such an impact on me, and I do think about him a lot. I think his his most famous novel was called Home to Harlem, I think. And Banjo and Banana Bottom are like two other really interesting novels. But this one is basically his lost book that was published for the first time last year by, I think, Penguin and maybe FSG in America, something like that, called Romance in Marseille. And I read Johnny Pitts's Afropean maybe a couple of years ago and was really blown away by that. And it came at a time where I was spending a lot of time sort of jetting back and forth to Europe and being in European cities and doing that whole thing and it really started to make me think about the experience of people in colour of colour in Europe and where that is found in art because there isn't enough of it if you think about all the great auteurs brown skin is completely you know it's 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 negated so this book is really really interesting because it's set in Marseille in the jazz age and it's narrated by a West African sailor who leaves New York as a stowaway I think he's drunk and he wakes up in Marseille and basically he has been sleeping in in I think in the icebox and he gets frostbite and the novel starts with his legs being amputated in Marseille so literally the first paragraph is in the main ward of the great hospital La Fala lay like a sword off stump and pondered the loss of his legs it's wow. incredible. So basically, he's stuck in Marseille in the old port, which is, you know, a really kind of cosmopolitan mix of people. And he, and also he was, he used to be a really amazing dancer. So he feels the loss of his legs. And a lot of the book is about the sort of phantom loss. And he ends up um, having, he starts having an affair with a, um, a Moroccan, a North African courtesan well, called Sam, prostitute. And they have a very complicated relationship and he's totally in love with her. She's only interested in him, from, you know, in, in a, from, from a financial point of view. And he ends up suing the shipping company and getting uh, paid a lot of money. And then everyone in the old port in Marseille, gangsters, prostitutes, um, all the hangers-on, everyone kind of wants to be his friend. It's just an amazing, rip-roaring kind of book. But, you know, the the kind of underscore of kind of the black experience, the African experience in Europe is completely amazing. And you think, oh my God, this guy wrote this book in like, you know, 1934 or whatever. Brilliant. And it's, and it's the sort of novels that I really want to see written now that we're not seeing enough of and that I want to see in film. But this is a great place to start. Oh, that sounds great. And no, we haven't talked about him on the show. And um, Fantastic. Yeah. I, thank you for recommending that. Sounds so good. <laughs> uh, I love that first paragraph. So this month, I am going to recommend the book Having and Being Had by Eula Biss. You might know Biss as the author of On Immunity, which was a really beautiful and surprising and fascinating book about vaccination. But in this follow-up, she turns to capitalism. And it's kind of a series of vignettes, I guess, that are a mix of memoir and research and reportage in which she very slowly and carefully and damningly interrogates 
the system of capitalism that we all live in. And she looks at things like being a consumer. She talks about Ikea a lot, class, work, money. And she has that ability, which I think all of the best essayists have, to just interrogate the things we kind of take for granted. And in doing so, lays out this case for both the very obvious and also just sneakily insidious ways in which capitalism invades every single part of our lives and entraps us. And what I liked the most about this is it's not worthy at all. It's funny, it's insightful, it's very curious, and it doesn't assume anything. And she's also just incredibly open about her own life in it. She talks very candidly about how much she makes, how much money she has, the background she's from, why she has money, the kinds of privilege she has and doesn't have. And it really made me think about how rarely people are willing to do that, especially people like Bess, who because she's been relatively successful as a writer, like does have money and can afford things. And I think sometimes people close off as soon as they come into that position in life and in terms of talking about those kinds of privileges. And I just, I really appreciated that and I really loved it. And it just made me see things very differently. So I would really recommend it. I've been desperate to read it. She's amazing. The proof landed. Yeah, she's such a, such a brain. Yeah, you know really how wonderful. I feel about capitalism. But on immunity is amazing. My my only shady comment would be is I would love her to write this book on capitalism now after all the extra COVID money from those sales of on immunity in the last year. Yeah. I won't, no, but it, I mean, but as as an appendix, I'd be interested to know how her point of view changes because actually that book went stratospheric last year, and when yeah. you have that kind of surprising success, you know, may, may it change her perspective on it. That's a, a really point. good point. Mm. That's a really good point. If and we ever interview her, Niven, we would put it <laughs> to her. <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Niven Govindan and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please do rate and review us on iTunes and share the show. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners. Also, keep your eyes peeled for our Patreon. Woo woo! We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.